Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. I may not be the person that changes the world, but I hope to inspire the person that can. That was Chef Chris Galarza. I happened across Chris virtually after my colleague Carla and his friend Rochelle Boucher at Kitchens to Life presented a cooking demonstration for residential induction cooking. Seeing Chris's impressive background and passion for sustainable food prep, I knew we had to have him on the podcast. Chef Chris is a culinary sustainability consultant and the owner of Forward Dining Solutions. Chris holds a bachelor's degree in culinary management. By age 23, Chris was acting chef at Monterey Bay Fish Grotto, the number one seafood restaurant in Pittsburgh. He has been opening sous chef for Off the Hook, the catering chef for Carnegie Mellon University, and was chosen over thousands as one of 12 culinary apprentices at the prestigious Greenbrier Resort. Chris then helped create and lead the kitchen at Chatham University's Eden Hall campus. Which is the first fully self-sustained university campus in the world. And it has one of America's first all-electric kitchens, boasting induction ranges, electric flat tops, electric ovens, steamers, tilt skillets. Uh, you, you think it, you name it, we got it. We had a farm uh, that had 30 plus acres in cultivation. We tapped our own trees for maple syrup, raised our own bees and trout, our own orchard, mushrooms. We did everything we could. And it was a, a culinary playground, if you will. Chris is now dedicated to creating sustainable culinary playgrounds for other chefs across the country. But he wasn't always so focused on sustainability. My journey through sustainability kind of the seeds were planted in culinary school with my professor. Her name was Sally Fry. And I, I say her name because uh, she was the one that even brought up the term sustainability, what it means, how important it is. And I thought it was a, it was a cool thing. It was like a fad, like, okay, cool, that's really cool, trying to give back to the earth. I get it. And then uh, when I got to Chatham University, I really fell in love with the, with, with the concepts, with what it took to be sustainable, how important it was. You know, I developed my own definition of sustainability, like what it meant to me. And to me, sustainability is to give back to the earth as much as you take from it. And right now, that's not happening. So I tried to, everything we could, tried to try to use up the ingredients as best I could, try to compost everything we could. Um, if something was deemed trash, try to find another life for it. And um, from there, just embracing this electric kitchen, which I, which at first I was hesitant about. And now, I mean, obviously it's inspired me to create uh, my own consulting company where, you know, although we consult on any, any number of projects on regular gas kitchens, I, I really love to consult and push people towards the electrification of kitchens. There's no real experts out there on the commercial sense. So I'm hoping to help nudge the culinary landscape in that direction. And what also helped inspire uh, this, I guess, business is that I've had people reach out and ask me questions about what it takes to run an electric kitchen. What is an electric kitchen? Um, how do you work in, 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 in this space? 
that really is foreign to the Americans. Um, and then through research, finding out that most of the world is already on board. So I started seeing this gap in knowledge where American chefs are behind their European, Australian, Asian counterparts because they're using these technologies uh, that they've had it for over a decade, almost two decades in some in some places. And at some point, like American chefs are going to start becoming uh, less desired where we once were the gold standard. So it was a combination of all those things that helped lead me to the path where this is important. That's awesome. That's a great sentiment. And I love what you mentioned about um, using up everything you can in the kitchen. I think it speaks to sustainability in a different way, but it's definitely the angle that I personally have um, felt attracted me to sustainability. You know, why are we wasting so many things? How can we cut um, waste? So um, I'd love if you could give everybody an example just to see us in your chef hat a little bit of where you've reused sort of something that other people thought was was waste. So... um... I'll go real quick to when, when I used to teach kids, I used to teach a bunch of high school kids who would come through once a year uh, to the campus. And we would have this one day where they would go into the garden. They'd pick all the produce. They'd bring it to me. I'd clean it, make sure it's all ready to go. And I would teach them a three-hour course in how to identify fresh fish, how to break down fresh fish, and what to do with it. So we would break down this fish you would have this carcass and most people would just throw away. What I did was I made a, I made a fume or fish stock. And then while they were, you know, while we were going through the class, this fish stock was going, I took their vegetable scraps. So I would also be thrown away, tossed that into the fish stock. While the uh, fish stock was continued to simmer, we cooked their meal. They'd sit down and eat. I'd at that point have them collect their scraps, bring it up. We would discuss um, what you can do with the fish stock. We can just uh, have them smell it, look at it, identify the characteristics of a good stock, and then have them taste it, how bland it could be, possibilities of what it, of what it could be. And then we would strain it and then make soup with it. So in that one three-hour class, I'd show them how to take this, this animal who, for all intents and purposes, died, and, is get, and we're lucky enough to receive those nutrients and it's incumbent on us to make sure that that animal has the utmost respect and is used to the fullest extent of our ability. So we were able to eat its flesh. We were able to make uh, broth from their bones, able to, instead of throwing out the leftovers, turning it into soup and having another meal with it. So that fish sustained us for two, three different meals. Um, and that's what, and that's kind of like the best uh, example of using up these ingredients that would be tossed away. Other uh, other things we've done is um, pickled pineapple stems or pineapple cores, rather. Um, it pickles fantastic. Uh, you would you wouldn't think so, but uh, it breaks down the the fibrous core. It has an amazing crunch. It's sweet. It's acidic. It's fantastic. And then from there, we've also turned um, like carrot peels and. You know, leftover stuff from like Mirapar soup production, and we grind that up and pickle that, and then we'd have, you know, a relish. Yeah, so there's a million things you can do with uh, with food. Yeah, that's so great. I always uh, feel guilty throwing things away. So I, I recently we made um, apple peel chips 
Mm. Uh, and they were absolutely delicious. So uh, awesome. you definitely inspired me. I never knew what to do with pineapple cores. So there you go. Oh, you, I've also made uh, salmon crackers from salmon skin. That was a lot of fun. Right. You take yeah. skin, dehydrate it. You fry it in a really um, about 400 degrees Fahrenheit, and it pop, it puffs up like a crackling. Nice. All of those sound delicious. And I think pe- when people think of um, you know sustainability, that would be perfectly aligned with um, chefs, it would be kind of using all of the ingredients. Not that everybody does, but of, co- of course, it's more cost effective um, for you. But one right. thing that I think the sustainability industry has always um, maybe touted as kind of oppositional with the culinary industry is the uh, electric kitchen. So just like you talked about the induction stovetop and um can you get a little bit more into your experience with that? What was your hesitation? What was your what was your perception of it uh, before you started working at Chatham? And then um, how did you come to kind of learn to use it to uh, to use it with your staff? You know, to make yeah uh, the same quality or maybe even better food in some ways. Sure. Yeah. So uh, in the, so going into Chatham, my perception of electric cooking was what we all think of initially is those coils that take forever to get hot that just don't it, t- it takes forever to cook food it slows down everything it's it it things burn it's it's just a terrible terrible piece of equipment it's god awful i remember we uh getting into apartments when i was a kid and be like oh electric and i wasn't even cooking <laughs> it was just so bad that like i knew and you know, I knew a little bit about induction because of, you know, being in the industry, you'd come across like the bake shop would have a little induction, you know, hob that you would plug in and take it wherever you wherever you want. But it was never something that like we used continuously or we used religiously. It was just a novel thing that you can just take anywhere you want instead of having butane or anything like that. And that was cool. Um, but that but that was the extent of uh, of my knowledge. I had no idea what it does, how fast it does. So I was like, okay, well, you know, never, never want to shy away from a challenge. I said, all right, well, we're going to make this happen. Uh, we're going to figure out what we can do. And, uh, you know, not a problem. Whenever it gets installed, we're going to get trained on it anyway. So we're all good. So the kitchen gets built. Um, we go into the kitchen. I'm talking to the rep. He's trying to show us how it works. He's like, all right, here's a knob. You turn it on, you turn it off, and uh, make sure your pans are magnetic. I'm like, okay, is there anything else you need to know? He's like, Hey man, I, and he said this. He's like, "Hey man, I just sell it. I don't know how this stuff works, really. You know, you figure it out. You're the expert." I was like, "Great!" And it was, it was, and that was the notion we got from every one of our vendors on every one of the pieces of equipment. Just, you turn it on, you you use it. What else do you want? I don't really know. Like I just like all I do is sell it. So that was the first big hurdle: is how do we learn to work with it? And we learned to work with it fast because, you know, I'm supposed to be leading this kitchen and none of my staff is really classically trained or anything like that. So we're like, okay, I need to figure it out and act like I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Fake it till you make it. Yeah, right. So first thing I realized is how fast the induction unit works. So Mm. our instinct is to get in the kitchen, put our pan on the burner, crank it on high, and then, you know, go go do what we have to do while the pan gets hot so we can start cooking. And so that's exactly what I did. I get I get in the kitchen, get a big pot going, oil, I put some garlic in there, crank it on high, turn around before I can grab my onions to turn back around. It's completely burnt, like like black, not even like Oof. brown. It's black. 
Uh, and I was like, oh, wow, that cooks really fast. And then uh, started we started doing some tests whenever we, we, had, we had downtime. How fast does it boil water? How fast does this work? How fast does this work? Is this okay? Is this not okay? And we started to piece together do's and don'ts while using induction. We started to kind of dispelling our own myths that we had come up with um, you know, while we were imagining what this induction kitchen was going to be. Because when we got in there, it was August of 2015, and the kitchen didn't get built until, well, we didn't move in until April of 2016. So hmm. we had some time to just kind of imagine what it would be, do some research. And uh, yeah, we, we kind of were all apprehensive. And then after working with it for a little bit, we realized that this is definitely superior to what we were doing. Wow. But through, you know, I'd stay late and, you know, practice different things and, you know, just observe what the staff were doing. And then we would kind of get together at lunchtime, talk about it. And then from there, we kind of just taught each other how to how it works. And then I would start training them on uh, th- things I've read, things I saw. And over the time, we just we just we just made it work. Um, and then over the time, we just f- fell in love with it to the point that when we would go help another account, it would almost feel like we'd feel snobbish walking in like, oh, you're still using gas? <laughs> <laughs> because we would... It's so primitive. Yeah, because we would put the pan on and crank it on high and it would take so much longer to get hot so we could start cooking what we need to cook. Right. It was like kind of like when you're used to driving a Ferrari and now you got to drive a Honda Civic. Like that's how it felt. <laughs> yeah, and that, that was one thing in, um, in Carla and um, Michelle's demonstration on um and she she calls herself an electric kitchen super fan which yes. I, maybe you would you would call yourself as oh well. for sure <laughs> that's great and rochelle's awesome yeah it's so good that that it's such a it's a small community of people uh electric kitchen super fans across the country that's very fun yeah so rochelle and i we uh like we've uh, kind of come up with like just through talking we realized that like she and i are two peas in the pod we love this stuff the nth degree she's just a she's just an expert in in residential equipment and i've never been a personal chef um outside of what i did for president shoresh at carnegie mellon but i prep everything in my own kitchen and bring it up and just we'd warm it up so i know everything there is to know about commercial cooking and if you put me into trying to talk about appliances for residential wouldn't know what's going on and vice versa so we've been we've been kind of like trying to build each other up because there's no one else doing what we're doing so i love that woman to death (laughs) that's great um yeah and i watched the um episode she did with with carla from our office and um she talked a, a little bit about um had a demonstration with boiling water and talked a little bit about you can't turn the pot on and then turn around and do your chopping and then throw the thing in. You you have to turn it on right when you're ready to use it because right. it, it goes up so yeah. quick. You turn your garlic into waste, basically. Exactly, yeah. Usually, you know, there's this sense of um, the chef's world and everything's so hot and it's a little bit dangerous and um, and things are flying and things are on fire and, uh, and in this situation you it's a lot less hot in the uh kitchen and there's a a few other reasons why it's actually a little bit better uh in a lot of ways for your staff and that's something that you've been thoughtful about in terms of sustainability of uh of your staff and turnover yeah 
there is significant dangers in working in a professional kitchen that I didn't notice until um, we switched over. So uh, there's a significant um, concentration of carbon monoxide. Uh, inside a traditional kitchen, it, it can exceed 200 parts per million. If you're outdoors, you're at two and a half parts per million at most. If it reaches a certain point, uh, they like sh it's like the federal standards is like nine parts per million is maximum. After that, everyone's indoors. There's something wrong. In the kitchen, we exceed 200 parts per million. That is incredibly dangerous, and we do that day in and day out, 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. You know, that's that's dangerous. You know, with these flames, accidents happen. I've seen towels catch on fire, aprons catch on fire. Um, there, There's a, a risk there that you wouldn't have. And then, as you mentioned, is also incredibly hot. You have this ambient heat because what's happening is you are trying to force these metals, these slabs of metal to get hot by throwing fire at it until it... it decides to accept that thermal energy and get hot. But what happens to the flame, what happens to that heat that wasn't accepted by the pan, it gets, it wicks off the sides and goes into the atmosphere. It goes into the kitchen, goes into your space, and then you become incredibly hot. I've been in kitchens where I check my thermometer and it's reading 130 degrees in my pocket, wow. you know, in my, in my arm pocket. Um, you know, we've been in this might be TMI, but there'd be, there'd be moments where we would, being in the rush we get to the rush we all go upstairs to try to like cool down you know some some of us would even throw up and then go back down to work because it would be so hot your body can't can't handle it for too long um and that's the environment that most chefs they that they work in that that's yeah. that's the and that they assume they have to work in exactly to, to do their trade and then when i got to chatham this electric kitchen here comes winter never really worried about it uh, i've worked in kitchens where i'd be in a beanie during winter because why not you're comfortable uh and we're all we're all in winter coats and gloves while we're working because it's working so efficiently we're cold we'd have to figure out ways to keep the kitchen warmer that's how stark the difference is um we've actually had data from my kitchen i'm looking to pull that up now where the ambient temperature never here it is never reached above 72 degrees that's the hottest it got and that was in september when we're talking about eliminating waste when we're talking about nothing gets thrown out that includes our heat so the heat that comes off of the pan that that comes off of the food that goes into the hood systems gets captured gets sent gets mixed with a food, food grade propylene glycol and that's what warms the building so yeah so we don't even throw away our heat that's amazing and i i think that speaks to you know you weren't just looking at um your components uh, within the kitchen itself, and and obviously who had an all-electric kitchen, but you were brought in um, as the chef, were brought into the discussions with the building engineer and operators and um, occupants to talk about how can we look at this holistically. Um, and I, I remember you mentioning ha being brought into discussions with the engineering team about how much energy you, uh, energy the kitchen was using and what you could do together to work together to reduce it. Yeah. So we would uh, talk on uh, on a weekly basis on how much water we were using, the energy we were using comparatively to the uh, solar that we were we. Were, the solar energy that we were creating. Um, we would have these discussions on 
how much water is being used in the kitchen. We'd use about 1,500 gallons a week. Um, when things were slow, how to get that number down, what we were doing to curtail that, uh, what our practices were, and we realized some pitfalls in how we were working. So most kitchens, you would go and grab something out of the freezer, thaw it out under cold water, and we'd realize that when we do that, we'd add X amount of water into the system because we also cleaned our own uh, water. So if we're just dumping water into the system, one, it's diluting the microorganisms that we're using to help clean our water, and two, we have nowhere to store that water or get rid of that water. So we had to be really uh, strategic in how we worked, uh, which is another hurdle that we had. And this isn't, you know, average. We were probably, I don't know of any kitchen that does it. I don't know of any chef that knows water and energy consumption that they had. <laughs> and those are the conversations that we had on a weekly basis over the years, um, for fine tuning it. And it was a whole other world, you know, you go to culinary school, you have these dreams of being, you know, a chef working for, you know, whoever it is you admire. And you, you never realize that, like, you're going to be mostly in an office and at some point probably talking to somebody about water and energy. But it was, <laughs> yeah. it, it was exciting to learn all this stuff. It was just, I was just in this bubble and I was just enjoying and soaking as much of it up as possible. It was just so much knowledge in that place and so much knowledge in this world that we're living in with with uh people who are discussing sustainability people who are um awake to the fact that the way things were needs to be changed needs to be adapted needs to be updated you know yeah absolutely and i think we've talked about this there's a, a sense um in you know in the uh, culinary industry, uh, similar probably to the sense that I get from, or that we get, uh, that we run into sometimes from the construction industry of, uh, you know, we've been doing it this way for 25 years or 50 years or, uh, and why would we change it now? Like, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Oh, I'm so tired of people saying that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. People are stuck in that. If it, if, if it's not broke, don't fix it. The problem with that is people who think that way never look to see if the, if there's something that could be done better. Right. I've never talked to somebody who said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, who actually actively looks at their, at their uh, base of operations and tries to figure out what's the most efficient way to run things, if there's any technology out there to make them more efficient, make them more cost effective. No, I've never seen anyone do that. They just said, this is... This is essentially what they're saying is this is the way I do it because I'm comfortable doing it. Hmm. I don't care about anything else. I'm just comfortable doing it this way. And that may work for some people in some industries. But when you are producing food, when you are in charge of a large group of people, you know, you're, the people working under you, your chefs, and you are watching them sit in this uncomfortably hot kitchen, breathing in methane day in and day out, um, and you realize that because most chefs don't realize that when you realize that and you're seeing that you're like, why am I putting my chefs in this death pit for, you know, to take it a little bit extreme because there <laughs> right. can be, there's a much better way out there. And as, as a business owner, you're always looking for a way to, to kind of, you know, pinch a penny. And if I come to you and I say, Hey, I can save you so much money on your, on your overhead simply by switching your equipment from gas to electric you will now increase how much food you could put out at, a, at, at 
any given time because the equipment now works faster. Your chefs are now um, more comfortable in the kitchen, therefore you have less conflict, which could potentially mean that you have lower turnover. You are now uh, not paying as much in in your utilities because on average an electric kitchen runs at 50% the efficiency of a gas kitchen, which means if you're paying $100, for instance, uh, say you're paying $1,000 for your for your gas bill, you're not paying $500 for your electric bill. You know, that's, that's kind of like what they're, what, what they're saying. It costs a lot less money to run and you will now no longer have to buy harsh chemicals to clean. Hot soapy water cleans everything. You, you essentially reduce the overall time of cleaning, which means your employees are now leaving early. And if I tell you that you can save all this money immediately, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. The people who say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. When they're pre- when they are presented with these facts, that's when the real answer or the real reason comes out. I don't like that. That's not the way we do things. That's not the way I've done things. And that's really what it comes down to is that people are uncomfortable with change. Yeah, maybe that is broken. Actually, <laughs> you know, when we when we take a step back, that that is a major problem. And so, um, thinking about can we provide holistic solutions that uh, check a lot of different boxes. Um, and we've talked about this too, you know, em, em, employee engagement is something that's very critical in the, uh, in the consulting world. It's off, obviously very critical for you. Uh, I'm curious do, on your, from your staff, uh, at Chatham or, or in your experience, do you have any anecdotal evidence or, or otherwise about turnover or retention rates with relation to, um, you know, comfort in a kitchen? Well, so that's a twofold. So as far as like my own turnover, we had low turnover. I mean, we were a small campus and right. I had staff that was there from most of my tenure there. Uh, I was there for five years and I probably had to hire maybe five or six new people over the time that I was there. You know, we had people who wanted to stay because it was a laid back environment. It was a comfortable environment. People got along. And I think that had a lot to do with thermal comfort in the kitchen. And actually, ASHRAE, uh, A-S-H-R-A-E, came out with a study um, that went to tackle this this exact question, thermal comfort in the commercial kitchen. And they have the number of kitchens that are in the, uh, what they would call like the optimal zone is Mm. far fewer than the kitchens that are beyond that. So mm. and that and they studied it over the winter months and and summer months and they and they broke it down through cooking preparation and dishwashing, and you'd be surprised at how many kitchens go beyond a hundred d- degrees Fahrenheit, and it's just it's an uncomfortable environment. You know, I, I I often say like it takes a certain kind of crazy to enjoy what we do because you are put into a hellish landscape with people who are just usually. Um, it's, it's usually a high stress environment, high, you know, fast paced environment, and there's little room for, for air. You're working with fire and sharp knives and it's all happening, uh, in breakneck speed. You got to make these split second decisions that can either cause you to get burned or cut all in an effort to feed another human being and to enjoy that. You gotta be crazy, right? I mean, I enjoy it, <laughs> but like it's a, yeah, it, it it's a it's it's a unique environment that 
most people would not understand or or want to be a part of. It's it's just tough. And if this technology that's coming out, this induction kitchen, uh, this induction technology that's in America that we are able to harness right now can make the environment easier, imagine how much more we could do if we are able to keep our staff comfortable. Do you think, you know, arguments would break out as much? Probably not. People are more comfortable. Mm-hmm. They're more relaxed. There's there's a number of different factors that are changed just by switching out a single piece of equipment. I've never came across anything in the kitchen that by making one change can lead to a cascade of positive effects. Thinking about kind of that triple bottom line, there are benefits uh, immediately in terms of uh, cost reduction and there are benefits in terms of employee turnover, which is a, a cost reduction and and health uh, health and wellness of your staff. And, um, and something that's good for the environment as well. And that actually, obviously from the folks generally listening to this podcast, the all electric movement is, um, is sort of an obvious path forward, (laughs) but thinking about thermal comfort in, uh, in most, uh, office spaces and things like that, I think people are talking about a little bit more now. Um, but that's so interesting in terms of, you know, what, when you have some a space that's very uncomfortable, how does that impact the interaction between human beings in the space? Um, that is definitely something that I haven't thought a lot about. So that's really yeah. interesting. I'm, I've, I've joked with friends, like I want somebody to do a study on the effects like of, the, of mental health from a traditional kitchen to an all-electric space and seeing um, what the implications are. Because it's got to be... You know, it you, it takes a toll on you to work in a place like that, and then to turn around and go to another place in the same environment, doing the same thing that you love, except that it's much more comfortable, it's much safer. I I feel like it's got to be a stark difference. I know it's helped me a lot. I used yeah. to be, you know, a traditional chef, right? Uh, the hothead, and now I'm a completely different person. I'm much more relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to check with your wife about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's part two of the podcast. That'll be fun too. So Chris, we talked about um, some of the benefits of electric stovetops, cooktops. You don't have as uh, that carbon monoxide and NOx that you get from gas burning, but obviously there's still particulates uh, and other emissions that come off just from heating up oil and and cooking itself, and that needs to be exhausted. Uh, I know you have a a sophisticated hood system. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that hood system and then uh, kind of the economics of that for you and where you saw savings potentially over the long term? Absolutely. So, yeah, so we we had a um, Halton Marvel hood system and what was unique about that hood system that it had all these sensors in that were scanned the cooktops that were in the in in the ductwork itself uh had these little tiny pinprick holes that would just blow out air all the time and there was a there was a control panel with a touchscreen it just it seemed like it was insane uh but after really working with it you get get to realize the the ingenuity the genius that went behind the, the creation of that system. So let's start with the pinpricks. So the pinpricks around that are constantly blowing air, what that does is it creates a more efficient positive and negative draft, uh, sorry, pressure to help more efficiently pull any grease, any smoke, any, any heat from the area immediately out. 
And it knows to do that because it turns on and off based on our own usage. So it knows to do that because it has these little sensors that are constantly scanning the cooktop. So when it senses the temperature going up, it knows, okay, we're they're going to be doing something. Let's kick on the hood system accordingly. And then it starts to suck up what, what we're doing, whether or not we're seeing this piece of salmon. Once the internal ductwork reaches whatever we deemed the temperature range to be, say 70 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when it really turned on and got everything out of there. From there, once everything was gone from the space, it turned itself off and that was it. So what happened beyond that is that it kept sucking it up and instead of expelling it out into the atmosphere, it captured that heat, captured that uh, waste, if you will, mixed it with a food grade propylene glycol, uh, as I discussed, sent down to the, to the, to the tanks where we then uh, had the 55 degree Fahrenheit propylene glycol coming up from the geothermal wells. And then we would run the warmed propylene glycol over that pipe and bringing, bringing that up to 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And all that was really cool. And what was to me, the thing that like made it like go from cool to essential was that we spent $300,000 on that system. And a comparable system, a traditional hood system, would cost $100,000. Why that's important is that because we were projected to pay it off in 14 months through energy efficiency alone. So just by not using it as much because it knew when to turn itself on and off, we were supposed to pay it off in a little little over a year. The reality of the situation was that we paid it off in nine months. Wow. So this piece of equipment that costs over a quarter million dollars, we paid off in nine months just because we weren't working it. And for those listeners who don't understand how a hood system works, first chef walks in, say it's 5, 6 a.m., they turn on all the lights, they turn on the, uh, the hood system, and it stays on until the last person leaves. So continuously. And if you have a 24-hour operation, your hood system stay on for 24 hours, seven days a week, nonstop. With this technology, what we're able to do is if you walk away from it, the hood system stops. So you are not paying for that energy. You're not paying for the machine being used, which means the machine's not working nonstop. You're not replacing parts as much. You're not paying for all that energy. You're saving money. And that's how we're able to pay it off. So people use the price tag a lot of times for this technology to say why they shouldn't do it. Again, people who don't like change tend to find all sorts of excuses as to why they shouldn't get it. But in reality, they're just that. They're baseless. (laughs) <laughs> and it sounds harsh to say, but it's true. Yeah, and and absolutely. And I think once you um, once you see the results for yourself, it becomes much more obvious right. that uh, that was the right choice. Right. Circling us back to the induction cooktops mm-hmm. for induction, I know a lot of people are resistant to it. We kind of t- we briefly mentioned um, some of that resistance earlier. Uh, and some of the myths that maybe you've busted over time. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> uh, and I know we we all have a, a myth buster, a love of myth busters. So let's jump into that a little bit. What um, kind of some of the things, you know, people talk about all the time, like, uh, well, I'm going to have to replace all of the pots and pans and everything to work with an induction stove. Um, what have you found? So what have I found? Um, I found that that's more than often true and that's not a negative. So you have to make sure that your pots and pans are magnetic. So 
yeah, they tend to cost a little bit more. But again, the return is where is where you really see um, the benefits. So traditional pans, a lot of people get the cheap pans. Uh, or, you know, when you put it on these flames, over time they start to warp. They start to not sit flat. They start to, you know, to, to, to teeter over a bit. And then you eventually, and then you have this black... Uh, soot that gets built up over time, this carbon on the outside of the pan. After a while, you throw out the pan, buy a new one. Um, what I found is that that usually happens anywhere between two to five years. Um, mm. You just get you just get all new pans. It just it is what it is. It's it's cost of doing business. What I found mm-hmm. with induction is again after using it for five years, I have my exact same set of pans, no warping, no carbon, no needing to replace them. They're pristine. They're brand new. Period. End of story. And the cost of those pans essentially paid for themselves. Because in the time I've had those pans, I would have had to replace them at least once by now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point that I hadn't heard before. You know, you do have to replace some, if not all, of them in the beginning, but that they'll last longer once you once you do, just based on the type of. And if you're not sure, grab a magnet, toss it on there. If it sticks, you're good to go. Cast Absolutely. iron is an incredible um, partner to work with mm. when I use when using induction. Uh, it is heavy. It retains heat. It's magnetic. You can toss it in the oven. You can do, put it on whatever you want. It works fantastic. So um, if you have if you use primarily cast iron, then you don't have to do anything. Your kitchen's already. I mean, your pans are already set for induction. If you're using aluminum or or you know things like that, you're not. You're going to need to replace them. Great. And um, you talked a little bit about the surface um, when we spoke before. I know people have concerns about, okay, what happens? They're maybe used to um, previous kind of electric uh, cooktops where the surface would would crack pretty regularly. Obviously, that would be a big issue uh, with an induction system. Um, I know, you know, there's a, you mentioned things getting thrown and uh, towels catching on fire. And uh, so I assume things are pretty crazy in, in the commercial kitchen. How has the cooktop fared kind of through all of that? So, um, and I actually put this into my presentation that I do when I speak with architectural and engineering firms and uh, prospective clients is that mm. when you think of the glass top, you're thinking glass that you have in your home or you're thinking tempered glass. The problem is that those aren't true. Tempered glass over time will, will crack or warp. Uh, what induction units use is a tempered ceramic glass, which is significantly stronger and more resistant to warping. Um, I have had giant stock pots on my stovetop for, you know, days on end, not a crack, not a scratch. I sl- sliding pots and pans around to make room for what I need to do. Again, no problem. Um, they're very strong. They won't warp. And uh, I can send you a picture of my the actual the actual glass top that I have it is not a scratch on it. They're very very awesome. durable. You'd have to take a sledgehammer to it if you want to crack it. I've had other people ask, um, you know, what's the point? You can't saute on it. You know, uh, induction cooking exaggerates speed. Let's jump into that a little bit. So the first one is you can't saute on induction because once you take the pan off of the the unit, it is no longer connected to the heat. Also, chefs love to preheat their pans for sauteing. First off, absolutely true. When you take the pan off, you're no longer connected to the heat. Just like when you take the pan off the flame, you're no longer touching the flame. Pan's still hot. Also, you do, 
chefs love to preheat their pans for sauteing because fire doesn't get the pan hot enough fast enough. Induction does. So there's no need to preheat. And uh, I have, actually have a video up on YouTube where I have a cold pan. I take a thermometer to it. It's reading in the 60s. I toss you know, uh, peppers in it. I turn it on to high in literally 10 seconds. It's sauteing. So, awesome. yeah, and then there's... We'll definitely link to that. Yeah. yeah, so there's also... People say that induction cooking is exaggerated. It doesn't get hot as fast, and it's it's all a bunch of marketing BS. Um, again, I have another video online where I put a pot of water on, crank it on high in about 30 seconds, a minute. It's already simmering, getting ready to, to go into a roaring boil. Uh, when I've had... Um, I had the Pennsylvania legislature out to campus we were doing a tour and i was explaining how the how the technology works i put a pot of ice on cranked it on high and as i was talking to them explaining how it worked about this is from ice in about four minutes or so it melted and, and it was boiling and i i feel like i'm a little bit remiss i just realized that like we're talking about induction and all that stuff and i really properly explained what induction is all about um mm. so do you mind if i explain that real fast for your listeners yeah no problem uh, go for it so in the way induction works is if you think about a piece of if you think about your microwave at home, and it uses these tiny little waves to to oscillate water molecules in your food at such a high rate of speed that it creates heat from the inside out, cooking your food. What we're doing with induction is we're using electromagnetic current to oscillate the ferrous molecules in the pan to essentially make the pan the heating element, and that's essentially induction in a nutshell. And it, the beauty of induction is that when, you know, when you're using gas, you, when you turn it on high, everything around that surface is now hot. With induction, what only gets hot is the pan and what the pan is touching. So you can put your hand all around it, and it doesn't, it's not hot at all. And because of how the tempered ceramic glass is, is made, it cools down very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that actually brings me to an interesting um, photo that sticks in my mind um, from Rochelle again uh, to go back to that is um, she has a plastic uh, squirt bottle Mm -hmm. right next to a pan Mm -hmm. uh, that's on on an induction stove. And I and I thought to myself in the past, I've definitely taken you know, bread out of a plastic bag or something, and then it starts to burn from, and you know, God knows what's coming off of, uh, coming out of that plastic burning inside my house. Oh, but it's just, um, it's so bad for you. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, thinking about safety, especially for clumsy people like me, um, you know, putting things close to that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the pan will still be hot. So right. Uh, uh, be careful but, but, with that. But because of the way that metal is. You know, the, the reason metal is such a great conductor is that those uh, the molecules are lined up in a linear structure. So energy can flow through it with ease, which is why it conducts electricity very well, which is why it gets hot very well, which is, which is also why it gets cool very quickly. So you've gone from chef to electrical engineer and uh, <laughs> chemist and... Uh... Yeah, wear many hats. Uh, what's, what's fascinated me and kept kept my love for food alive is actually the science of cooking. I find that much more mm. fascinating than actually cooking. Um, obviously, I love cooking. That's my first love. Uh, don't tell my wife that. But uh, <laughs> what I love about cooking is understanding the chemical processes that are happening, what's what's happening, the thermal, like from taking a piece of chicken from raw to cooked, 
there's so much going on in that in that span that it's just there's a whole other world if you look if you just look past the actual food itself um you know people talk about molecular gastronomy which is if you ever see those you know chefs making like caviar out of whatever um that term got coined for those things but really molecular gastronomy is a study of like what what happens to food from its like during the cooking phase so from its raw mm-hmm. state to its cooked state and that's what i've fallen in love with it's true molecular gastronomy um and when you're talking about induction it allows you to you know look beyond the food and now look at the equipment and, and understand what's happening um and how you can maximize the equipment to make it work for you and make it and now make your kitchen much more efficient yeah i it was interested to see that the uh, Atlantic ran an article all about electric uh, kitchens and and pros and cons and uh, talking about ve- proper ventilation of kitchens. You, you don't normally see our uh, nerdy information in kind of a major <laughs> publication right. um, and New York Times talking about it. And mm-hmm. um, so they talked a little bit. Uh, there was a chef that said uh, induction is OK, but you can't you can't do wok cooking in in an induction stove and that was some one thing that you mentioned so that was the the myth i wanted to circle back to and and end on especially for folks maybe who have just read that article and are left wondering i appreciate you bringing that up um they were absolutely right a few years ago the problem with that Mm -hmm. is that these companies want to get into america so they are going to make any uh advancements that they can to get into this market so when chefs say it's not good for for wok cooking, guess what? They created induction woks. So now instead of having a flat surface, it's a surface that fits perfectly a wok. So now you can have that wok hay, which wok hay essentially is um, this level of heat that you reach when you're cooking with woks, where the bottom is the hottest. And as you go up to the top, you have different levels of temperature. So you can build your dishes up that way so if you ever see someone working with a wok they'll start cooking in the center and then start pushing the food up to the side because it has various different uh temperatures that they can finish up those ingredients as they're doing whatever they're doing down on the bottom um but yeah so they have that and there there's more if there's anything else that people are coming up with to say that it doesn't work well for that these companies are going to fix that but yeah we're working with a company um with the Microsoft project that I'm a part of that is that created a walk just for them specifically for their for, for their kitchen and design they've tested it and they loved it and that was one of the things that was instrumental in having them go towards 100% induction and that's excellent for um looping us back to your story a little bit so you were um, you were a chef at Chatham, and then um, you started you, to convert to this uh, consultant role. So tell us a little bit about how you sure. made that transition. So how this happened was completely by accident. So I was working, it was September of 2018, I believe, that Microsoft reached out. And they, uh, you know, I talked to their chefs, their chief sustainability officer, um, and they asked, like, hey, uh, we're working with an engineering company that coincidentally also built your campus, but they've been pushing us to do this electric cooking. And we did a little bit of digging and found you and we wanted to kind of, you know, ask you your opinion, you know, unbiased. Mm. You're not like, we don't really believe yeah, it. Essentially. Like we want to hear it yeah, from the they chef. Said, yeah. We're not on board, but we kind of want unbiased. So we're going to, you know, sneak it around his back to just find out 
what is the truth about this stuff and is it and is it worth it so i had a conversation with them it was about one hour i shared with them you know everything i've been sharing with you guys how much how much we love it how much i've fallen in love with the equipment how much it's, it's changed my life um for the better personally like i've it's changed my outlook on how i view this world uh but regardless of that like when working with it i, I share with them you know s- serial number model numbers uh who made what pictures of what everything was what we do with it samples of menus everything and we talked about it for about an hour and they said okay thank you very much i appreciate it and that was it uh, i didn't hear from them at all and then uh you know we go on thanksgiving break i come back and like monday or tuesday after thanksgiving uh i get a call or i, I get rather i get an email from hormos jansen's from 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 interface engineering and he wanted to thank me for the microsoft conversation i said sure yeah he's like yeah i heard that uh there was a uh chat between you and katie ross at microsoft and the team um about induction and i want to thank you because one one hour conversation with you they've committed to going all electric i said that's fantastic news thank you and he's like well you don't understand we've been trying for three years to get them to do this and you talked (laughs) for them for one hour i was like okay he's like would you be interested in consulting for us for other projects? We have Stanford University. We have LinkedIn's been interested. We have a bunch of different places that have been interested. Uh, and the problem with that is that they'll say, okay, you're thinking about pushing us towards electric. Can you get me an expert to talk to so we can talk through our concerns? And he's like, the problem is there is no expert to talk to. So, you know, you are in the right place at the right time. Would you like to 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 do this and I said absolutely you know it's something that I enjoy talking about and I enjoy educating so let's do this so I I, I created forward dining solutions where you know it was essentially a, a, my own little consulting firm just to help out you know interface and you know at some point maybe I'll do something with it and you know I started thinking about it a lot more January rolls around I get the you know I get the ball rolling on this um June, I get, you know, my EIN number and everything. I'm like, wow, I really do have a business. This is crazy. <laughs> and uh, a week before my 30th birthday, I get that contract for the Microsoft pro- project. I sign it. I send it in. And I'm like, wow, I'm officially in business. And after that, I'm like, this is what I want to do. Like, I had so much fun talking with Microsoft, talking with Interface. We've been doing, you know, um, these presentations at NBBJ and WRNS and, you know, and like other places like that and getting people all excited. And every time we go do one of these presentations, um, it's always kind of shocking because I'll talk to, you know, whoever it is, is is like, is like our contact. And then me and Steve, uh, Steve Gross, who's the, um, the associate principal and senior energy um, analyst at, at um, interface he and I will go in. He's like, "Hey, man, like, I've, this is crazy. Like, this this is a huge group we're doing it for. Like, three three hundred people." Man, okay, cool. He's like, and then the person would come in and say, "Hey, just so you know, uh, the owners of the company essentially are going to be here. They really wanted to do this. They're all excited." And they'll say, "This is by far the largest group we've ever had, and it consistently happens everywhere we go," which isn't to toot my own horn and say, "Oh, they're excited to talk about stuff that I'm taught <laughs> that like I'm passionate about." No, it's to say that this movement this 
um, conversation on induction cooking on kitchen electrification is a huge topic. It's something that people are struggling with with their own these these, these accounts that like this is the best way forward, but people don't want to do because there's no nothing proven out there. So I'm excited to help mm. bring people on board and show people that this stuff really works. And I'm excited to be on the ground floor to do it. Um, it's just, I don't know. I get, I get really jazzed up about it. So I'm hoping that, you know, I can do this full time. I can do this and really make a change. Uh, I've reached out to other podcasts. We're going to be just trying to get the word out because this is a topic that isn't going anywhere. San Francisco, uh, starting June 1st, there will be no gas gas allowed in new construction period uh berkeley has done it uh oakland has done it san jose has done it there's uh talks about changing legislation in massachusetts so they so they can pass these laws to ban gas this is coming there's no stopping it the exciting part is do you want to be against it and really slow things down or do you want to be able to really steer these policies steer this technology where it ought to be do you want to be part of the people who are being responsible, not for just the environment, but what is best for our industry? And that's where I want to be. You know, I want to, like, I sit on the advisory board for Pittsburgh, Te- Pittsburgh Technical College, <clears throat> and I talk to these chefs, these young chefs, about what's out there. And, you know, I talk to them about what, what they want to do. And I, I hear, I want to go, you know, to France and work, you know, for a few Michelin-starred restaurants and bounce around. And after working at the Greenbrier, you know, for that caliber of cooking, I can tell you that when you get there, they'll give you one day of training. You know, they'll say, here's here's the material, study it. You come in, someone will walk you through the kitchen, how the station works. After that, you're on your own. And if they have to train you on menu and everything like that, on how, it, how everything works day to day, where things are, and now they have to teach you on how the equipment works, you're not going to be a candidate for them. Because they don't want to have to teach you the basic stuff of how does induction work. They don't have time for that. There's a reason they're the best in the world, and it's not because they're hand-holding everybody. So I'm seeing these chefs who want to go to these you know, places around the world, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, they need to be aware of what's out there. And they can't be burning they garlic. They can't be burning garlic. So all these things are bouncing around in my head, and I'm just wondering... I hope I can make a. Uh, I hope I can make an impact. I hope I can make a dent in what's in what's going on out there, because there's so much riding on this, not just not the company, but electric cooking in general. I really do think that that's that's the the biggest piece. If we can get that hammered into to America, that this is like not radical, it's a sensible change. Then uh, I really do think we can make a huge difference yeah that's incredible we had a great conversation about where the industry is uh and when we have you back on the podcast in five years what will we be talking about then so you spoke to a couple things but what do you think we'll be talking about in five years Ooh, great question we'll be laughing about how insane it was to work in 100 plus degree kitchens sweating bullets in the middle of winter and What we're going to be excited about is the new wave of technology coming out. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. And I think thinking about translating our conversation from this can't happen to how can we make this happen is going to be just so liberating in terms of how we can solve our our future problems, whether they're from employee engagement, from you know, decarbonization of the country or, or um, from our own personal health perspective, how can we tra- change the conversation from we can't do this to how can we make this yeah. happen? Agreed. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I had a, I had a blast. Me too. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. To learn more about sustainable commercial kitchens, check out our show notes at swinter.com slash podcasts. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We believe our world is not as sustainable, healthy, safe, equitable, or inclusive as it needs to be. We continually strive to develop and implement innovative solutions to improve the built environment. If you want to join us in our mission, visit swinter.com slash careers. A big shout out to our production team, Jade Alvarez, Dylan Martello, Alex Mirabile, Heather Breslin, and my co-host, Rob Aldridge. We thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.